Welcome to Maniacally Midwest, a true crime podcast. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Maniacally Midwest. So I am Chloe. I'm one of the co-hosts, and I have my other fabulous co-host here, Katie. And she is going to be presenting this week, which I'm really excited to hear what she came up with. But before that, we wanted to give a quick shout out to another podcast. Yeah, this is a pretty cool podcast we've checked out called Haunts, Graves, and Omens, hosted by Fred and Taylor. The name of it is a pretty good description of the content, but they do a great job of adding so much humor to a topic that I personally typically avoid. I am a giant chicken, and when it comes to anything paranormal, I avoid it. Like I saw maybe a quarter of the Mothman movie before I noped out of it, and the episode with the Mothman and the Jersey Devil that they did had me cracking up. You can find them anywhere you listen to your podcasts. Um, Again, it's called Haunts, Graves, and Omens, and Friend Taylor are the hosts. Awesome. So I'm dying to know, no pun intended, what (laughs) crime you selected this week. So I'll let you just take it away, Katie. All right. Yeah. No, I know I've been calling you and hinting at it and keep telling you this week, I'm going to blow your balls off. So that's what I've heard. My balls (laughs) are waiting. (laughs) So here we go. Trigger warning. Obviously there's murder. Um, There is kind of sexual assault and also like children involved in this so that's your warning um it's september 28th in 2000 in georgetown indiana georgetown is like 15 miles away from louisville kentucky so classifying it as midwest is maybe a little bit dicey but it is indiana and indiana is part of the midwest um and basically i saw maybe like a month ago, one of the true crime documentaries on this case. And I was like, we got to cover this. So we'll make an exception for it just because I want to. We'll make an exception, even (laughs) though it kind of feels like the South. I mean, it's totally the South. Bet you any money, they got a Waffle House and they have a draw, 100%. David Cam and Kim Cam had what appeared to be the picture perfect life. They'd been married for just over 10 years. They had one son who was seven years old, Bradley, and one daughter who was five. Basically, it's the ideal family in most people's eyes. Everyone's like, oh, are you going to have another kid? Yeah, we'll get through it. Anyways, David and Kim made it past Y2K. It's September 2000. They didn't have all their lights and their computer blow up or do whatever was going to happen. That's exciting. Their disc man didn't spontaneously combust on New Year's Eve of 99, so everyone's happy. David had been working as an Indiana state trooper, and months prior to this evening in September, he had left the department and started working in the family business, which not only gave him more time to spend with his family, but he actually made more money working this job than he did with the state uh, police department. Okay. So... On this evening, at the end of September, David goes to play a couple of games of basketball with his friends at a local gym. He got home around 930 and basically all hell breaks loose almost immediately. 
He pulls up, the garage door is open, and out of the garage door, there's like a river of blood coming into the driveway. So he runs in and sees Kim's body on the floor next to the family Bronco, which, side note, I'm so excited the Bronco is back because the Bronco is a badass car. He sees Kim, and he says in an interview that he knew immediately looking at her. I mean, I think also the river of blood was a hint, but that she was gone. Um, And his thought immediately goes to his children so he sees that the door of the bronco is open and in the passenger side so the bronco was like the two-door suv thing yeah it wasn't a four-door then um and so he sees his daughter jill five slumped over in her seat like it looks like whatever happened happened so quickly that she hadn't even moved out and her head is basically in her lap. So he assumed she's gone also. He didn't know what killed all of them because this all happened so fast. But oh then he saw his son kind of like halfway slumped over the seat. Like maybe he was trying to get away or do something. Um, and he thought maybe he was still alive based on how he looked. So he reaches across Jill and grabs Bradley, picks him up and brings him out into the garage floor next to Kim and tries doing CPR on him, but he's gone. Um, So a matter of minutes after coming home, his whole family is dead, like he realizes. So he springs into action and he calls 911. The recording of it is absolutely like devastating, like him screaming. I can't even imagine. It's like, I'm getting like goosebumps right now. That's so horrible. I think also too, like the age of the kids is where I start to get really stressed because I mean, your daughter is about Jill's age. My daughter is a little bit older than Jill's age, but I just imagine coming home and finding your significant other and your children all dead and Um, not knowing what the hell's going on. But I have heard people and read stuff about the 911 call where they're kind of like speculating, like that's a weird 911 call. He basically gets a hold of the police department and is like, let me talk to the postman, put the postman on. That means like the person in charge of the post, but he worked, he worked for the Indiana state police. Like he is basically like, Hey, I work here. I know how this crap works. get me the person in charge and he's screaming get everyone to my house and someone tells him like oh it's gonna be okay and he's like no it's not it's not okay my whole family's dead get everyone over yeah and basically hangs up um I did seem like the police got there pretty quickly but based on what's going to follow I don't know if that is a positive thing so Oh my goodness. I don't know where this one is going. Yeah. The Calvary rolls in and according to Dave, a really experienced um, evidence technician came inside the garage and within five minutes, he announced this is a Dave Cam crime. This technician made this statement prior to any witness interviews, prior to any piece of evidence being collected, which isn't a great sign. If they come in with, they discover that Kim, Bradley, and Jill were all shot in the head. Jill was laying on the floor in only her underwear. 
and her new shoes were like neatly set on the roof of the Bronco, like next to each other, like how you'd like yeah. see them nice and neat. Uh, next to her on the floor is Bradley, which I said he took him out of the car, but underneath him is a sweatshirt. It's a gray sweatshirt and it has the words backbone written in the like collar of it in Sharpie. And then Jill was in the back passenger seat. During the interrogation, Dave kept saying he has no idea where that sweatshirt was from. And he kept telling them, if you find the owner of that sweatshirt, you're going to find the killer of my whole family. But that didn't tie into their theory that Dave was the one responsible for it. Mm -hmm. So they kind of ignored it. I mean, I kind of understand because typically, I mean, especially when it's an entire family that's murdered. And there's not stuff that's like missing. It doesn't appear like they didn't steal a car. They weren't like robbed. That the assumption is going to be that there is like an emotional and relationship tie to the killer. Right. But it, no one is really surprised when he is arrested on October 1st in 2000. The trial is starting in January 2002. Okay. And a couple things are happening. Firstly, the prosec prosecutors present the fact that Dave's marriage was not all rainbows and sunshine, like it appeared. And in fact, it seemed as though Dave had been having affairs as far back as to when Kim was pregnant with their daughter. Oh, that's And good. they presented that as motive for the murder. And they had some of the women that he had affairs with testify against him. Well, there were multiples. Yikes. Mm-hmm. The second thing that happened is the prosecutors brought out their blood expert named Robert Stites. Uh, I want to point out, just for information's sake, when we circle back, that the state of Indiana paid him $219,000 for his work on this case. You know, this makes sense now. I don't know if anybody watches Dexter, but he's got that real nice boat and a pretty... <laughs> nice setup in Miami I wondered how he could afford it but if they're paying these guys $200,000 for one job like it makes a little more sense now so yeah except okay. for Dexter works for the police department and that's the difference is the Indiana State Troopers did have a blood analyst this guy was a blood expert that they brought in specifically he was from out of state got it Okay. So, so it wouldn't be a person salaried. It would be like someone contracted out for this specifically. Got it. So he says there's blood all over the inside of the garage door. There's blood on a septic cap, dig up the entire septic system. And there is some blood on a mop in a bucket. Okay. Additionally, he says the river of blood was cleaned up by Dave. That's what he claims because like the color kind of changes, which going back, people point out that actually if it's a large amount of blood and depending on how long it's been staying, it can kind of separate. So it'll look like different colors of it. Not necessarily that anyone has screwed with it, but it does kind of, I think it's the water separating from the rest of it, but yeah, that would make sense. <laughs> He also found eight small droplets of blood on David's shirt. And he said that it was high velocity impact spatter. Yeah. And he said it would have been impossible 
for Dave not to have been present or for Dave not to have been the shooter to get that blood on his shirt. Okay. Um, even though he had 11 people who were witnesses that he was with them the entire evening up until coming home and discovering his family because he was playing basketball. Yeah. He said he played a couple games. He sat out one game. And so the state's theory was he played a game. He sat out a game, snuck out without anyone noticing, killed his family, snuck back in without anyone noticing and went on and played the game. But people actually testified. No, we saw him the whole time. He didn't leave. I talked to him, but they kind of like crapped on that by like being like, who are you guarding at this game? Who were, or how many points did you score? What were you wearing? And keep in mind, this trial is two years after it happened. Would you remember who you were right. guarding in like a stupid, like friendly basketball game at a gym? Or no. how many points you scored? I mean, I would, cause I'm awesome. And I'd be like, yeah, guess what? I scored the most points and I was the best person ever. But most people are going to be like, I don't know. That's true. So the only way that Dave's defense felt like they could battle this is to bring in their own expert. And their expert said, yes, these are eight droplets of blood. They had the blood tested. It was Jill's blood. And they said, if you look at the like fabric, it's like right on the outside. It hadn't really been absorbed. And you can see like different levels of absorption. But they were really tiny spots. And they said, Dave said he reached across the car to grab his son and his shirt must have brushed against her hair, which had some blood on it. And that is the resulting spots. But yeah, this guy didn't have the credentials that Rob Stites had. Okay. So they were kind of like, whatever, this guy is super prestigious. He is doing a PhD program. He is an expert you don't know what you're talking about. This guy says high velocity impact came from a gunshot. We got him. Mm -hmm. So David is found guilty in March and sentenced to 195 years. So, oh my gosh, that's that. Psych. That's not where it ends. Yeah. In August of 2004, the court of appeals threw out the conviction because the testimony about his affairs was prejudicial. Basically, it didn't prove okay. to a motive. All they did was like make the jury hate him yeah, and then be like blood spatter. So we think he's a butthole. <laughs> he's going to jail. Right. So essentially he was convicted because they thought he was a douche, not because yeah. they really had that much evidence against him. Yeah. Which is unfortunately, he, you know, not how I mean, the law works. Like I hate a lot of people, but I also have an appreciation for sometimes you got to set that aside in professional instances. And of course, when it comes to the court of law, I mean, I have to believe that I personally have not been selected for a jury because I've been like watched in my regular life. And they're like, oh, she's going to convict everyone. She yeah, seems her rest. The only piece. time I got called to jury duty, it was for a traffic case. And I got out of it because I don't drive. And I told them that. So they just let me leave. So 
that was convenient (laughs) they were like oh she's dumb she doesn't understand how cars work she won't be able to help us well they asked they were like they were asking specific questions about like well what would you do in this instance if you were driving and they come to me and I was like I don't know how to operate a car and they're just like okay because they can't be like uh all right you idiot (laughs) and that was the I don't know how to operate a vehicle yeah So anyways, sorry, back to Dave. He might've been a womanizer, probably was not like the greatest person, but not necessarily guilty of murdering his family based on that. Right. Even more interesting is that in November, 2004, the state of Indiana refused to reinstate the initial charges. So they were like, no, we're not going to do this. But then Keith Henderson, who was newly elected as prosecutor, says he is going to refile the charges. So if it was left alone, Dave would have been done after this first one. They were like, nah. Did they release him from jail and everything? So he ended up getting a $20,000 bond between the two trials, like when the guy decided he's going to refile. So he is out. February 2005 finally five years after seeing this backbone sweatshirt and initially during the first court case he had asked the prosecutor because basically on the defense side they had tested the dna on this sweatshirt that said backbone mm-hmm. and it wasn't his dna uh, whose whose is it they gave the sweatshirt to the prosecutor and asked him to run it through codis and he said okay and he said mm, we don't get any hits from it they decided because they didn't actually run it through CODIS that they finally would. And guess what? There was a hit. Um, oh my so, God. <laughs> so the hit belonged to Charles Bonet, which by the way, let me rewind CODIS for anyone who is new to the criminal world. It's like the database of criminals basically. So if you have a criminal record, they're going to be able to find your DNA, your fingerprints, blah, 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 whatever. If they pull it and then they run it through this national database, they're going to be able to tie a crime to you. It pings to Charlie or Charlie. I don't have a nickname for this guy. We're not friends. <laughs> Charles Bonet, whose nickname from jail was Backbone. So literally it was his name in the back of the freaking sweatshirt. Oh my God. So, he was released just before the murders happened from prison. So it isn't that he didn't have a record at that point and it didn't ping it. It's that the prosecutor just decided, I'm not going to run this evidence because it doesn't line up with my theory. In addition to that, there was a freaking palm print from Charles Bonet on the side of the Bronco that they just saw this palm print. It didn't match Dave but they didn't do anything with it because if they did again this guy just got out of prison it would have come back to him and they would have had this person a lot earlier Charles Bonet had a a lengthy rap sheet part of his MO he was known as the shoe bandit I think of Indianapolis okay I Um, should be laughing but this is reminding me of like home alone whatever they're bandits or whatever like that's what I'm clashing to but well so I mean at that point he hadn't been killing people or anything but his mo was to steal women's shoes and he had a lot of violence against women as well which if you remember 
the shoes on top of the Bronco, which it doesn't make any sense in everything. First of all, I don't know. You know, Broncos are kind of like taller. They're definitely SUVs. Tall. Yeah. I don't even know if anyone was like, could she even reach that? Because like on my husband's pickup truck, I can't put anything on the roof of it. No. So, but that is a very that all, piece. That all starts to make sense. Well, everything checks out. You think the puzzle pieces are coming together and now justice will finally be served. Well, did he Dave have like a run-in with this guy while he was a police officer? Now I'm just no. like wondering where this all gets tied up. Okay. That's what the state of Indiana is trying to say. They don't go on to charge just backbone. They make him a co-defendant. They will not back off Dave. They refuse to pull back from him. And they claim that he and backbone teamed up for this. And this guy decides to go with the state's theory. And he's like, yeah, you know, he arranged for this. There is no evidence that he ever had any contact with this guy ever before. There's no phone records. There's no evidence that he ever even met this guy And it ended up being that he messed up in describing the clothes he was wearing that day. He couldn't really describe Dave. And he claimed that Dave killed his family and then tried to frame him for it. And when he was shooting his family, he got really scared and ran out. He tripped over the wife's shoes and set them on the roof. Because, you know, if you think you're going to get murdered for something, you're like, oh, shit, I tripped over this. Let me just set this up here tight. I'd throw a freaking shoe at someone. Imagine, like, being Dave, though. Like, literally dedicating most of your life at this point to, like, putting people away for doing stuff like this. You know, like, trying to keep the public safe. And then losing your entire family, which is horrible within itself. And then on top of that, being basically blamed for everything when, I mean, at this point, it seems like he definitely did not do it. That is like, that's terrifying to me. Like I have anxiety just thinking about the possibility that things like this happen. So the other thing that the state started to do during this was they brought in one of Kim's friends and said that she had a conversation with her and she wasn't supposed to say what she had said in the phone conversation because it would be hearsay. But there kept being implications that like, oh, she said something that made it seem like Dave was going to kill her. Um, And also the state decided to say that they think Dave was molesting Jill. Oh my God. So they kind of threw anything at the wall that would stick. And I just imagine that he thinks, okay, we found this sweatshirt. Finally, my family's killer is going to be brought to justice. Mm -hmm. And they're kind of like, no, 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 we want you in jail. But okay, during this trial, right? So they're being Mm -hmm. tried at the same time, but separately. They're being tried in two different counties. Um, They had figured out that... Rob Stites, the blood expert who said all this stuff happened, he had none of the credentials that he claimed and none of the previous experiences was true. He had, he had no training, no coursework, and had never processed a crime scene prior to this one. This is 
what I feel like I'm really missing out on in my life. This is like the very early years of the internet. Okay. You try and lie about anything now, somebody's going to figure it out. But this guy just out here acting like he knows everything. Like I would have told everybody if I was an adult in 2000, I would be a Harvard graduate. I would have worked with Kanye West. I mean, everybody knows how much I love him, but I would have been like his personal art director. This is unfair and ridiculous. Okay, so anyways, no I mean, my biggest and he got $220,000, by the way. Okay. So the spatter on the garage door that he found, it was yeah. motor oil. <laughs> he tested it. Shut up. The septic cap that he had them rip the entire septic tank out for. Yeah. Um, it, it was a mark from David Cam's red snapper push mower, not blood. And also the mop and bucket that they had tested. I don't know what it was, but it was not blood. So and even- how did they even present like any of this evidence? Like how, like, cause presumably even if this, you know, blood expert in quotations, if he was like, yo, this is what this is. They sent it to a crime lab. And when they processed it, those people were probably like, you know, whether we're idiots or not, this is what the machine says. This is not fucking blood. So how, how, how did this all just ensue? I'm very confused and concerned. So I don't know, but even though, so I actually, the state acknowledged his lack of experience and Stites has admitted he is not a crime scene deconstructionist and he has almost no scientific background of any kind. But oh my God, during the second trial, they still use this high velocity impact evidence, even though they know that their expert is not an expert. Where is Dave's legal team at, dude? What are oh, they? They were, doing? they were fighting it and they have been awesome because they got him this appeal. So, okay. All right. Bonet is found guilty of three counts of murder and one count of conspiracy. And he's sentenced to 225 years to jail oh wow and in march of 2006 cam is found guilty and sentenced to life without parole but wait there's more what in 2009 in june his second conviction is overturned because of the prejudicial evidence and like witnesses of the molesting accusations and then the hearsay from her friend yeah. So his legal team, while I'm like, where are you? They keep getting these appeals and getting stuff overturned for him. They were just dealt a crap hand. And I feel like it's kind of like the, the house always wins situation where like the yeah. judge, the prosecutor, the police, they're all on the same side and the stat, like the cards are just stacked against you, but they were doing a good job doing as much as they could. November, 2012. Oh my God. 12, <laughs> 12 years in. After his family was murdered, he is retried again. And then in 2013, he is finally found not guilty. Oh my I God. don't understand how he was found not guilty when he, twice already he was found guilty. And I mean, in my opinion, it was not correct that he was found guilty. Right. But it seems like the only thing that really changed was that the trial was moved to Boone County instead of Floyd County where it was before. And that's where the crime occurred, correct? In Floyd, in Floyd County, County. Yeah. yeah. So 
I mean, because in my opinion, yes, the second trial had extra evidence than the first one, and then they added stuff. But it seems like the defense was always on the same path. This is what's going on. This is what's going on. And I also want to add that the prosecutor, Henderson, Mm -hmm. he, during this time, he made a book deal to write a book about this case. How is that even legal? Dave Cam's legal team ended up getting him removed from the case because of it. He was claiming like, oh, no, no, no. I made that deal after, after the trials and everything. But they were like, nope, this dude's trying to profit off of it. And they got him removed. Dave Cam is not in jail. And I mean, I'm sure that there are some people like I watch those like innocence tapes and the confession tapes and stuff like that on Netflix. And I'm like, oh, my God. They're being framed. And I know there's some people that are like, "Mm, it's all about the way that you like present evidence. I'm sure even guilty people can look innocent. But in my opinion, it does seem like he's innocent. There's not really anything connecting him to this. And I mean, also, I think that the state doesn't really even touch on. They ignored the fact that she's in the garage in just her underwear. And I don't know if it was like an attempted rape or something that went bad. Well, that's what I was going to ask is what was his motive? Like, Bonet? I don't know. Uh, He had been, he had like 11 years of basically like violence against women in some way or another and the shoe bandit thing and the foot fetish and whatnot. So it's not like super surprising that it escalated. And it's I mean, it's so scary that things like this happen just randomly. I mean, it's scary in general, but I can't imagine. The thing that like blows my mind is they lived in, I mean, I saw like the video footage. They lived in a decent area. Someone killed them in the garage and I'm assuming the garage door was open and he left it open. Like you did Where was this. everybody at. Dude, I'm a nosy neighbor. If somebody got murdered across the street from me, like I would know immediately. I would know while the crime was happening. Like I can't even. Okay. I thought that except for a couple weeks ago, I like woke up in the morning and I know I was awake. I was watching Survivor with my husband. Okay. (laughs) Weird flex, but okay. (laughs) And it was reruns. Anyways. Obviously. Um, <laughs> do they still make Survivor? I think they do. Shut up. Okay. They do. That's Anyways, I saw on our neighborhood Facebook page that a bunch of cars had gotten broken into and the neighbor across the street from our house, they left their garage door open and their keys in the car. And these kids tried to steal their car, but their husband's car was parked behind it. So they hit the car and then ran off. So there would have been a giant sound of someone crashing a car across the street from my house. I didn't know it. I was awake. On that note, thank you, everybody, for tuning in to Maniacally Midwest. Katie, thank you for sharing. And we will be back next week where I will be sharing a new crime from the Midwest. I think next week we're going to have Joe Exotic straight from prison. I mean, side note, like on the real, if anybody knows any crazy big cat owner stories from the Midwest, I personally would (laughs) love to cover that. So uh, leave us comments, send us some DMs, 
if you know the you know bill exotic of ohio we would love to hear about it (laughs) (laughs) bill exotic Yeah. yeah no we really appreciate we've gotten so much positive feedback um from people and it's been really fun and exciting to do this um if you have time, you can review the podcast on both Spotify and Apple. Um, we have an Instagram. We started a TikTok because I'm cool. We're I'm relevant not. with the kids, you guys. So follow our TikToks. I might even throw some of those like cringy dances up there if we can get those filmed <laughs> soon. So yay, I'm excited. And to everyone who celebrates, Merry Christmas. Yeah. Enjoy your holidays. And if you don't celebrate Christmas, have a nice weekend. (laughs) Happy Saturday. Happy Saturday. All right. See you guys. Bye.